Hello and welcome to this episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. Today's episode is going to start off a little bit different. Uh, you're going to have it come up in a little bit. I'm talking with Michael Mallinson and my recording software decided to cancel out on me so I had to use Zoom and the results, well, they're they're okay. Uh, so I, I hope it does Michael some service. He's such a good and informative guest. But first, make sure to go over to spondypodcast.com and sign up for the whenever I feel like sending it out non-standard newsletter that I create. That way I can stay in touch with you and make sure that I get out really uh, timely information if I come across it on ankylosing spondylitis or axial spondyloarthritis. So in today's episode, as I mentioned, I'll have a chat with Michael Mallinson about his experiences with ankylosing spondylitis and the advocacy that he's done in his home country of Canada, but also globally. Michael was diagnosed almost 40 years ago with ankylosing spondylitis. In addition to a long personal history, Michael has served as an advocate for patients with ankylosing spondylitis. Michael is a past president of the Ontario Spondylitis Association, was a founder and past president of the Canadian Spondylitis Association, past board member of the Arthritis Alliance of Canada, and a volunteer in the arthritis community. Um, Michael currently devotes a lot of his time as a volunteer with, with the Axial Spondyloarthritis International Federation, of which he is a past secretary. So with that, enjoy. Well, Michael, welcome to this episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. And based upon the introduction and what we're going to cover today, I may have to change that name at some point down the road. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for having me. And yes, there's um, certainly uh, time to change uh, terminology around our disease. Well, I was diagnosed 35 years ago. Things tend to change slowly. So hopefully I'll, I'll get around to figuring that out and what I want to do and how we, we structure it. But, you know, you and I met through a forum on Facebook that deals with ankylosing spondylitis and, and the whole disease structure itself. You've made multiple posts that have been met differently with uh, people's reactions on why the correct terminology might not be calling the disease itself ankylosing spondylitis, but maybe better off calling it axial spondyloarthritis. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I can. I understand why people are married to the name ankylosing spondylitis, because like you, that's what I was diagnosed with and um, after my disease onset 40 years ago. But times change and technology changes. And um, also the name ankylosing spondylitis was never a universally used name and still isn't. In many parts of Europe, especially German-speaking countries, the disease is referred to as Morbus Becheru or Becheref. Becheref, yeah. In Russia, for example, it's named after Becheref, who was a Russian doctor who, who documented, not the first two, document um, some of the uh, symptoms of ankylosing spondylitis. But it's also been called Marie Strumpel disease as well, after two researchers who described the disease. But what's more important from our point of view is that axial spondyloarthritis is very difficult to diagnose. Originally, it was diagnosed by x-ray, radiographically. So back in 1973, people recognized that there was a very common association with the gene HLA-B27 and spondyloarthritis. 
And looking into that further, they started seeing that people with axial spondyloarthritis, or then called ankylosing spondylitis, um, had this radiographic stage. And that was used as a diagnostic tool. There is no diagnostic criteria for our disease, but there's lots of different classifications. So if you had radiographic sacroiliitis and you displayed some other spondyloarthritis symptoms like family history or morning stiffness, etc., you were diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis. But then MRI came into being in the 1970s, and by the 1980s, it was out there in the general hospital population and in general use. And um, people who could read MRIs very well started noticing that if they were taking an MRI of the sacroiliac joint, they could see sacroiliitis. But was this the same as the sacroiliitis evident by x-ray in ankylosing spondylitis? And there was a long debate about that. And that debate really wasn't resolved until the last year or two. So it's now understood that what we call axial spondyloarthritis is a continuum of disease from what had been called non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis through to radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. So it's all recognized as one disease. And the important thing about that is that to exclude people from patient organizations, from help and support, from the treatments available for ankylosing spondylitis, because they have non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, is extremely unfair. The disease burden is the same. Somebody with non-radiographic axial spar has exactly the same symptoms, the same pain, the same stiffness, the same mental issues as somebody with ankylosing spondylitis. There's a further important part, and that is that we know from a lot of evidence that the earlier the treatment, the better the outcome for the patient. So if you're waiting six, seven, eight, nine, ten years for a diagnosis and you don't get onto a treatment plan, until you're sort of seven or eight years into your disease progress, that's pretty serious because by then you could have disfigurement, you could have kyphosis, you could have fusion, etc. That could have been prevented if you had been diagnosed earlier and treated earlier. So with the x-ray, the big problem was that it takes about seven or eight years for sacroiliitis to show up on x-ray. An MRI can see that sacroiliitis after about 18 months or 24 months from disease onset. So it's evidently better to get people on a treatment plan 18 or 24 months after disease onset than seven or eight years. And um, so, as I say, I think the terminology is important to being all-inclusive of this full spectrum of disease and to include those people who are diagnosed with um, MRI imaging in our um, discussion about axial spondyloarthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. When you and I discussed this, now, obviously you're in Toronto area in Canada. I'm here uh, just across the lake in Michigan. And when I was diagnosed, I was 14 years old, had had pain from about nine or 10. It had always been attributed to, you know, quote unquote, growing pains. And when I went and saw my rheumatologist, for the first time in 1984, he asked just a couple of basic questions and said, 
tell me about this, this, and this, this, and this. And he goes, you have ankylosing spondylitis. Now let's do the testing to prove what I think is going on. So for me, in my mind, in my process, it was always, you went to a rheumatologist, they asked you a few questions, you were diagnosed. They then did an MRI, which was a newer process, but he did x-rays and then an MRI, blood work, and boom, you've got ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah. Then I never met anybody else that had ankylosing spondylitis. So I didn't know that anybody else went through these seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 year battles. So when I started hearing that from people, I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. I had no clue that that even existed. It was uh, really an eye opener for me. Well, maybe you're one of the lucky ones, but on the other hand, if you started with symptoms at nine, which is not altogether unusual and weren't diagnosed until you're 15, the six years there where you might have had a more mental relief, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you, because you could have known that it wasn't just in your head or just, you know, growing pains or something. And one of the things that you didn't quite address there didn't touch on is the male to female ratio because females are notoriously bad at being diagnosed and that doctors used to think of ankylosing spondylitis as a men's disease i'll come back to that in a moment to a degree it is but women take two years longer than men on average to be diagnosed and part of it is because many of them were diagnosed erroneously with fibromyalgia instead of AS. So when you're showing all these symptoms of pain and stiffness, etc., uveitis, your doctor isn't up to date and doesn't know about ankylosing spondylitis, as many GPs do not, then it's going to be a long, a long, long journey to diagnosis, especially if people are looking for other uh, reasons like fibromyalgia or um, endometriitis or something in women. Well, and it was quite interesting. And again, a lot of my interaction with people is online. So one of the people mentioned something about uh, women having degenerative disc disease. One of the things mentioned I saw online quite relevant was all these women kept coming back and saying, I have degenerative disc disease. And I started wondering, I says, well, is that really the case? Or were you diagnosed with that beforehand, along with saying you had fibro or something of that nature, and then a third diagnosis of, oh, no, you have uh, non-radiographic or you have ankylosing spondylitis, it's radiographic, and, and really you don't have a degenerative disc disease, it's just a function of what's going on with the ankylosing spondylitis, with the axial spondylar arthritis. Well, yes, and um, I understand the difficulty for women because, um, you know, doctors... Um, don't know a lot about ankylosing spondylitis to begin with, and never mind the term axial spondyloarthritis. And of course, women present a little differently than men, even with ankylosing spondylitis. For men, it's usually in the sacroiliac joints, whereas women, they often start with pain in their hips and shoulders. So it doesn't actually first present axially. Um, so what's a doctor to do if they don't know that? And of course, the other difficulty is that about 90% of the population at some time or other speak to their doctor about back pain. Of course, 99% of that back pain is mechanical. Uh, our interest is in the 1% that is inflammatory back pain. So doctors may go off on the wrong direction from right from the start and diagnose degenerative disc disease and not really be cognizant of the fact that there is an inflammatory 
back pain disease. But um, yeah, it's 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 not an easy disease to um, diagnose. And what I hope the new terminology, the axial spondyloarthritis, allows for is more and earlier diagnosis. And I also hope it's a term that's used more universally. It's used very, very widely in Europe now. Uh, in America, it seems that the knowledge translation is somewhat slower uh, and people have really not adapted this term yet. Well, we're, we're take a while to change here. Uh, <laughs> you latch onto something and it kind of sticks. And where I was going with that is here in the States, one of the preeminent places for treatment of the spondylarthritis is, is the Cleveland Clinic. And you made a very good point that I hadn't even paid attention to until I went and looked at the website was Dr. Khan, who is a very well-known expert in, in this disease and an author. His first book was just ankylosing spondylitis. It was, yes. His second book was then ankylosing spondylitis dash arthritis. Now his third book, his most recent one, is just axial spondyl arthritis. He's taken a more holistic or a, a much larger, say, 30,000-foot look at the disease and said, here's what we have. And as, as you pointed out, it's kind of removing that term of ankylosing spondylitis and trying to make a more, not generic, but a more universally used term. Well, it is a, a more universally or it has the potential to be a more universally uh, used term and it also gets rid of this term non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis which is quite a mouthful as i mentioned before the, the disease burden is the same between non-radiographic and radiographic stages of axial spondyloarthritis but there are some interesting differences with ankylosing spondylitis, which is the radiographic stage of axial spondyloarthritis, it's about a two-thirds to one-third men to women. And uh, it's not really clearly understood why the non-radiographic stage doesn't always progress to the radiographic stage. But conversely, the non-radiographic stage, we see more in women so it's two-thirds women and one-third men so if you add the two together for axial spondyloarthritis as a whole it's a one-to-one -one relationship and that's uh, that's important to note because women were poorly diagnosed and had a longer time to diagnose in the past so the non-radiographic stage allows them to be diagnosed earlier but the other thing about calling the whole disease spectrum axial spondyloarthritis now as researchers and leading cl clinicians are starting to do instead of breaking it into the two stages is that it allows people with early non-radiographic stage of disease to have the same treatments that people with um, ankylosing spondylitis have in other words biologics i don't know about the situation in the United States and Canada, there's only one biologic actually approved for non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis at this moment. I think they will all be approved eventually. But um, as we know, the earlier the diagnosis, the earlier the treatment, the better the outcome. Sure. And, and as we mentioned biologics, there's been debate raging across a lot of places. And Personally, I think the debate is driven by money, but 
which many are, but there's that new class coming out, which are biosimilars. Think of biosimilars as a generic for a name brand medication. So there's a huge, I don't know if there's a huge price discrepancy between a biosimilar and the name brand uh, as far as, you know, when you and I as patients look at the medication costs, but I know there's a lot of dollars on the line for the, the manufacturers. So have you noticed in the Canadian side that there's been a lot of acceptance of the biosimilars from patients? How, how has it worked on there? Cause I, I've not even had a biosimilar ever offered to me here in the States. Well, it's interesting. Um, in the States, you have a very, um, very, um, what is it? Devious, corrupt, <laughs> something medical system when it comes to uh, the payment for medications. So in the States, you do not see a big price difference between the originator biologic and the uh, biosimilar of that biologic. In Canada, it's a much, much more pronounced difference. So for example, um, if I look at um, Humira, the, uh, well, that's not a good example. Let's look at Remicade, um, the Antenacept. The actual biosimilar is about um, half the price, maybe 60% of the price of the originator. And um, so that's pretty significant. And it's why there's been quite a discussion in Canada about the uptake and the acceptance of biosimilars. We unfortunately were subject to some misinformation propaganda, in fact, from some of the pharmaceutical companies. I won't name them, but um, they were the ones whose biologics were coming off patent first. And they were telling patient organizations that these biosimilars were not the same. They were similar, but not the same. They were made in crappy facilities in crappy countries like Korea and India. And um, that there were problems with the naming convention so that, you know, people wouldn't know what drug they were actually on if it was the originator or the biosimilar. All of these things proved to be very, very wrong. And um, in Canada, I think we were fairly advanced about it. Patient organizations, um, at least some of them, didn't have the wool pulled over their eyes with that propaganda and accepted the fact that biosimilars are the same as originators. And how can I say that when they're called biosimilars? I was very fortunate to attend the National Institute for Bioprocessing Research and Training in Dublin, Ireland, um, quite a few years ago, and see how biologics are made and understand what biosimilars are. So the thing to understand about a biologic is that the biologic that you take today is not the same as the biologic that you took last time. And that's because the manufacturing process is so complex that they can't always get it spot on. It's not like generic drugs, which are small molecule chemical drugs. A biologic molecule, it's a large living molecule, very, very complex. And the production is allowed within tram lines of variance. So that variance happens in the manufacturing process naturally. And in fact, you can get a trend in one direction or the other. So the Humira 
or the Remicade that you take in North America is not the same as the Remicade or Humira that you take in Europe because of this divergence, diverging trend from the original. When biosimilars were approved, they were approved not on the basis of chemical of sorry clinical trials, they were approved on their chemical similarity to the originator bio uh, biologic. They were given tighter tram lines of variants. So in fact, a biosimilar of Remicade is actually closer to the original Remicade than the Remicade may be that somebody is taking at the moment. Does that make sense? It does. It's, yeah. it's squirrely, but it makes sense. In fact, a biosimilar is closer to the original biologic than a generic drug is to its original chemical drug. And that is because when you look at a generic drug, I don't know what it is, some sort of aspirin, say, it's got fillers and stuff in. You don't know what else it's got in. It's got its active ingredients, and then it's got fillers and uh, adherents and stuff in there to hold it together in pill form. So it is less like the originator drug than a biosimilar is like to its originator biologic. So they are in, you know, it's the same drug. If you were taking uh, Remicade and you go on to Inflectra, which is uh, one of the biosimilars for Remicade, it's all the same drug. It's, it's, there is no difference that is of any significance whatsoever. And that's the thing that patients need to understand because in Canada, um, we have 19 different health um, systems here. Each province, read state, each province has um, its own healthcare system, and then there's some healthcare systems for veterans, etc. But each province within its healthcare system has a drug formulary, and they decide on which drugs are going to be made available, and they negotiate the prices in conjunction with the other provinces with the um, manufacturers. So if a manufacturer is coming along and saying, hey, I've got a biosimilar and it's um, 40, 50, 60% cheaper than the originator, those drug formularies are going to look up and say, wow, we need to do this because our medical costs are going sky high. And, um, you know, all these so-called um, orphan diseases with specialist drugs and the biologics are hugely expensive. We need to decrease our costs. There's a huge saving to the um, healthcare system and society if we allow biologics uh, to be paid for by the province. Then if they can reduce that cost with biosimilars, that's even better. And following the scientific evidence, they said, well, we're actually going to make patients switch from the originator to the biosimilar. And there was a bit of a hue and cry about this because of the, um, shall we say, propaganda efforts put out by the pharmaceutical companies. But in the end, in the case of British Columbia, which was the first province to do this, there was a lot of hue and cry. But um, in the last analysis, the switchover went very smoothly and better than anybody expected. Because one of the effects of the letters that um, the pharmaceutical companies sent out to patients on their drug, telling them to 
be aware of uh, biosimilars was that those patients took that letter to their doctor their doctor explained it properly and they said oh sure i'll switch to the biosimilar <laughs> so it kind of backfired on them <laughs> the law of so, unintended consequences yes yes exactly so in british columbia there was a very very good uptake of the biosimilar and that's now rolled out in alberta and it's coming to all the other provinces as well and um, I think that's a good thing for society because it means less cost in the healthcare system. And um, it's also a good thing because you take somebody who might otherwise not have been at work, they can get on a biosimilar now because it's affordable and they're back at work and they're paying taxes and, you know, sustaining society. So is it the case where like, if I, if I went 20 miles away, I'm in Canada, I'm in Sarnia. Yeah. If I was living there, which is part of Ontario, if I'm a new person, like I walk in the door, I'm diagnosed, and they say, let's try you on Remicade infusions. Mm-hmm. Am I going to get Remicade? Am I going to get the biosimilar? Or, I'm go- or I'm, am I going to get a choice? You will not get a choice. New patients go on the biosimilar. Okay. And yeah. I've not heard any complaints i've not seen anybody welling up and saying it does besides the the fact that remicade style medication might not be the appropriate biologic for you Mm -hmm. i've not heard anybody say the biosimilar is and i guess you really wouldn't know if you're on a biosimilar whether it was better or worse than the actual name brand version but i've not seen any welling up of people complaining one way or another well i haven't either and uh I'm a little surprised by that, but then one thing that I learned about the American system is that people are switched between biologics all the time for insurance purposes, and uh, that's something that hasn't really happened in Canada. You go on one biologic and you stay on it if it works for you. If it doesn't, as many of them tend to fail after a while, or maybe in 30% of patients they don't work at all in the first instance. but if you find one that works for you, you stay on it. Whereas I discovered in the States that people are often switched because they're working for an employer who um, is always looking to cut their costs and they switch their drug plan Mm -hmm. every five years or something. So people are forced to switch just because their drug plan won't cover their existing one or or something like that. It can be. There's the way it usually works is you're with insurance company A through your employer and employer switches to insurance company B and you're on Cosentix, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, there isn't a biosimilar that I'm aware of for Cosentix because it's still a patented new yeah. drug. So the employers, the insurance company says a biologic is a biologic is a biologic. You know, I don't understand any of the differences. I don't care to. All I know is that I'm paying 4000 a month for Cosentix and I can switch the guy over to a biosimilar of Remicade for 1500 whatever the amount the math is. Yeah. So they say no. Well, it's like a lot of things. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. They're going to send you a letter that says no. Then you're going to go back to them and say, but I need it. Mm-hmm. They're going to come back and say no. Then you're going to send a doctor's letter that says, well, I need it. And then they're going to say, well... No. And then your doctor is going to write a third letter generally. Second letter might do it, but generally the third letter says, look, he's on Cosentix. There is no alternative. 
And if he goes off Cosentix, you're going to be looking at higher costs potentially for A, B, C, whatever A, B, and C is. And then the insurance company says, all right, we'll think about it. Yeah. And that think about it just means somebody has to look at it and say, yeah, this is going to cost us a whole lot more than this. Boom. You got, you got it. Doesn't always mean it'll work that way, but it's generally if you push them hard enough. Now it's a little bit harder, for example, if you're on an anti-TNF when there's Remicade, Embril, uh, Humira, there's a number of options that can be, can be rolled into there. Then they may push you towards something different, but if it's working and your doctor writes the letter the right way, yeah, chances are it'll be approved. Yeah. But it is a hoop to jump through. And as a person with a chronic debilitating disease, it's the last thing you want to be dealing with is here's something that helps me. And all of a sudden I just got potentially the carpet yanked out from under me. And now I got to start this whole goofy process over that, you know, it's really a pain. It's uh, well, it is a pain and uh, patients are not well equipped to do that because you're already suffering from fatigue and maybe anxiety and depression because of your disease and uh, who wants to have to fight for it. Uh, um, right. That, that's not good. And I, I think there's a lot of advocacy to be done around that. And, uh, you mentioned Cosentix, and that's an interesting case because Cosentix was a biologic that's made with much newer technologies than they had when the anti-NF um, biologics were developed. So it was cheaper to produce. So Cosentix, even as an originator biologic, is cheaper than the anti-TNF um, inhibitors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's really a it's really a squirrely situation with medical drug pricing looks at it in the states and again i never took remicade i took both humira and embril mm -hmm. and cosentix is more expensive than either one of those oh in the states yeah but i also know drug companies charge more for drugs here in the states so they can charge less in other places and use that as an offset so it may be cheaper in canada based upon contracts worked out with the Canadian drug company or not drug companies, but the, uh, the health province healthcare plans. So it's always interesting to talk to somebody in different places to find out what they're paying for different drugs. Because here in the States, if our health insurance covers it, we generally don't pay a whole lot of attention, which is what they want. Whereas you may get a more detailed breakdown of what's your medications cost. Even if you don't pay them directly out of pocket, you still might get a better breakdown. I don't know. And that could be different, seen different in Germany and could be seen different in Australia. Yeah. Actually, one of my objections to the way drug pricing is done in Canada is that um, the negotiation point is taking a basket of prices from seven countries, one of which in one of which is the United States. And I think that skews the basket badly because drugs are so expensive in the States. And I think in Canada, we should throw that price out of the basket and <laughs> look at a lower cost. So in Canada, all the provinces used to um, negotiate drug prices individually. And then they got together in a pan-Canadian coalition, if you like, and uh, they negotiate en masse with the uh, drug companies. 
and as I say, they use this basket of um, prices from other countries as a starting point, and they want to drive it down to that point or somewhere near the average of that point. In the States, I may have this wrong, but I understand that there is no sort of large negotiating body. It's really between the manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies, and the insurance companies, and nobody else has much of a say in it. And then I understand that there's a kickback. There may be another nicer way of saying that, a kickback from the pharmaceutical companies to the insurance companies. So the insurance companies aren't motivated to negotiate for reduced prices. This is my understanding of why prices, drug prices in the States are so high, because um, you know the, uh, <laughs> the insurance companies don't have that incentive to uh, negotiate lower prices. And that could be, I, you know, you've seen here in the States, there's been a push by many of the bigger insurance companies to buy their own distribution arms, to buy pharmacies, basically. Yes. And so I think that is, if the terminology kickback is used, it was probably a, a negotiated payment for distribution or however you want to use it to offset different things. I'll use Cosentix as again as an example. It's about four thousand a month from my shots. So if I get that four thousand, but then I turn around and say, "Well, CVS, you're distributing it. Here's five hundred bucks for your problems." Um, if I'm the insurance company and I buy CVS, that all comes back to me and my corporate, basically bottom line. Yeah, that is a very expensive drug in the U.S. In Canada. It's about a thousand Canadian dollars a month. Wow! Canadian, the Canadian dollar is worth whatever you know. Yeah. It's about seven, eight hundred bucks American. Yeah. American, yeah, yeah. So that's a huge difference. <laughs> oh no! When I took my first, you know, with Cosentix, they do a loading dose of five shots over five weeks. Mm-hmm. So, at that point, I got the first dose in the mail, and it had the price printed on it. If you, if you want to say. And the first dose was $4,300 and that was for one shot. Oh my and goodness. so <laughs> if you did five of those in five weeks, you're talking $21,000, hey, $22,000 yeah. American. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's expensive. And uh, I once had a conversation with the, um, the two guys who um, uh, discovered um, TNF inhibitors. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of his name now. Um, so it'll come back to me in a moment but um, uh, you know they developed this and then it was sort of public property and then the the pharmaceutical companies got patents on it etc so um, what these guys were saying to me was that they were disappointed that biologics weren't more accessible and weren't more widely available um, and um, I guess they thought that the prices were extremely high. And I understand there's always a lot of cost in bringing a drug to market and then your patent runs out all too soon. But still, there are cheaper ways, especially with technology these days. You know, I I was talking about those tram lines of variance. Back in 2000, when the TNF inhibitors had been developed, they had machinery to move to to measure that variance, right? The machinery that measures that variance now 
is a million times more sensitive and accurate than the machinery, the technology that they had just 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, so so yeah, the well, technology has moved tremendously. So these drugs can be made a lot more cheaply now. And that's why I think biosimilars are, uh, are safe to take because they're measured much more accurately. They are the same as the originators. They're produced by some of the major pharmaceutical companies, you know, like uh, um, uh, Merck and Pfizer and what have you. So, um, uh, yeah, it's um, just well, going back to your original question about biosimilars. I see nothing wrong with them, and I think patients should accept them because patients' premiums are going to be lower if they're paying uh, less for uh, a biological intervention. Yeah, and it's like anything else. It's really a matter of time. And well, there's not a biologic, like I said, for Cosentix at this point, when you look at the biologics for if you're on Remicade or I don't know if there's one for Embryol, but I imagine there probably is mm -hmm. uh, based on how long that drug's been around. And I'm sure there's also one for Humira. Just those three alone, Remicade and Humira, I believe, are two of the most widely prescribed medications in the world, not just the United States, but in the world. They are, yes. So the the dollars on the line for the name brand versus the biosimilars are massive, which is why I can certainly understand the the large companies not wanting people to start to to shift over because these are over, really yeah. these are really cash cow yeah. medications for them. You know what I said to one of the pharmaceutical companies when they they were talking about defending their marketplace. I said, well, you know, if you were a car manufacturer and somebody came along with a, a better, cheaper car, what would you do? You wouldn't slam the car. You wouldn't say it's a piece of rubbish. Uh, it's a lemon. Uh, it's poorly made and all the rest. You would go out and you would build a better car, you know, a cheaper, a higher quality car at the same prime price point. So why aren't you doing that with the drugs? I never got a good reply on that. <laughs> <laughs> and you won't because they don't have to. <laughs> because they don't have to, yeah. <laughs> and until the way the U.S. market goes is the way the rest of the world will go, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And if if the U.S. market doesn't change, then it doesn't force slash benefit the rest of the world market. We've heard this by ordering drugs as Americans, ordering drugs from Canada or bringing them in from Mexico the drug companies will run ad campaigns here in the States about how unsafe it is to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. So the high blood pressure med in Canada is not safe for them and you're selling it to them and only the one here in the States is safe for me or are they the same meds just at a fraction of the cost and you don't want me to go get them there. Now that was also not unfair to the Canadian or not fair to the Canadian healthcare system because it meant that you as Canadian taxpayers we're then subsidizing American drug buyers. Yeah, so, I know. And the funny thing is that the, those drugs that are from Canada are FDA approved anyway. Exactly. Because, because the Canadian Health Canada or its agency that actually approves the drugs usually doesn't do it until the FDA is approved. There are some exceptions, but by and large, Canada follows the FDA's approach. <laughs> yeah. I've actually remembered the name of those uh, two individuals who developed the uh, T 
TNF inhibitors. It's uh, Marty Feldman and uh, Tiny Rainey. Tiny is his nickname because he's a very large man, very tall man. Uh, but it was uh, Marty Feldman that I was speaking with who made that comment about he wished that the biologics were uh, more accessible to more people. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, it, we think we have problems in North America, but then you think about people in, uh, you know, in Bangladesh or Thailand or something where they don't have um, the same infra health infrastructures. Yeah, I know. I see quite a few people post from India, mm -hmm. but once, and I, they have a fairly large and robust healthcare system, I believe in the cities, but the rural areas are a whole different ballgame. Yes. And then when you head farther east from India and you go through all of Southeast Asia, I think, again, in the metropolitan areas, you'll, you'll find a more robust healthcare system for those that mm -hmm. can afford it. Yeah. And outside of that, you're, you're left to your own. And I, I, I can't imagine dealing with a, a disease like this with, with no access to any healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. No, it must be quite alarming, although um, I do have to say that to manage your disease, to take charge of your disease, I do think requires lifestyle changes. And I see quite a lot of people who are not really willing to change their lifestyle. They just want to pop a pill or eat turmeric or something. They, they're looking for that silver bullet that will help them. But... Um, you have to take charge of your own health care, you have to advocate for yourself, and you really have to change your lifestyle so that you, um, you know, can live life to the fullest. Yeah, as a, and I know I'm a, I catch heck for this every time I go to the doctor, I'm probably carrying 50 pounds more than I should. And I've had bilateral hip replacements. And, and the doctor is always on me about, do you know how much extra pressure that puts on your hips? Yeah. Carrying that extra weight. So it's a good example here in the States that it, it's very challenging anywhere to make that adjustment. Just, just in eating is a challenge. And I know that can reap huge benefits for any of one with this, mm. with this condition. Well, it can. And uh, it's odd, isn't it? That's when I was diagnosed, first diagnosed 10 years after disease onset, um, I was told it's a men's disease and the people that I first came into contact with uh, who were fellow spondies were um, elderly, thin, white men, <laughs> you know, but that's not the profile at all. I know over my years running the Canadian Spondylitis Association that the new demographic is uh, largely female and, um, and certainly not thin old white men <laughs> i was told that now my doctor did t say that women could get it mm -hmm. but he said it's generally not as bad which we know is not the case yeah said, women's disease is actually worse than men's disease uh, by and uh miracle study yeah he mentioned at the time that it was primarily a disease with of people with mediterranean descent and i thought and then it was funny because the first person i met that had ankylosing spondylitis was from Israel. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, that just cemented that concept to me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, 
why are all these people from England getting this disease? Because that's certainly not a Mediterranean. And it just kept saying, okay, we chip away at this. And now that rheumatologist I had, had um, he just retired last year. And last time I went in to talk with him, we had a long conversation about this. And he goes, he goes, man, that disease has changed. He goes, this is one, he says, I, as a rheumatologist, there's a lot I have to know and a lot I have to keep up on. But he said, ankylosing spondylitis has kept me on my toes for the last 35 years, probably more than any other condition. Because every time you turn around, there's something new coming out. And I have to determine, is this applicable? Is it just a study? Is there something anecdotal? To, he says, you're always having to determine how this fits into your patients. Does it fit into your patients and where you're going with this? So he was really, he was really forthcoming about just saying how much it's changed and how much he's had to re rethink his practice. Well, he's right. I mean, there are many, many rheumatologists who don't know very much about uh, axial spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. And, um, Look at how it's changed in the past 30, 40 years. When I was diagnosed, I was told that the um, prevalence of it is, was one-tenth of one percent of the population. We know that to be wrong. I was told it's a man's disease. We know that's, to be, that's wrong. So the actual um, prevalence of axial spondyloarthritis and spondyloarthritis in general, so taking the group of diseases, is now understood to be as common or more common than uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So we're talking about 1% of the population, or 1.5%, not one-tenth of 1%. And we're talking about the involvement of a lot of, a lot of women who previously um, were ignored. You know, I know of one patient, female patient, who was told that, oh, you just have achy female uh, disease or something. <laughs> you yeah. know, totally ir irresponsible diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, there's so much in the way of this disease that, as you said, you've got two-thirds of one type, which is just as debilitating, affects women and two-thirds the other and there's yeah. crossover and everybody that has non-radiographic won't develop into radiographic but everybody that's got radiographic at some time started off in the non and it just yeah. kept progressing and so the one thing i like to say about about this disease is it's it's the disease that keeps on giving and it, just as soon as you think you might know something about it or that something's concrete be prepared, yeah. that means it's likely to change. Well, yeah, I mean, not everybody who um, progresses to the radiographic stage will actually progress to uh, fusion either. Correct. So, so that's, that's a little confusing. And um, anyway, <laughs> yes, it keeps on giving, except a few of us lucky ones that um, I would say my remission has been ongoing for years and years now. Don't ask me why. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The old adage of the, that at some point the disease burns itself out or, or lessens in severity, that's kind of true. And why I say that is the reason it's true is because my SI joints have fused, my lower back is fused. So once the fusing is, is done, that pain is, is mitigated. That pain is lessened. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the... The, it burns itself out, so to speak, is that 
it's got nothing left to fuse. And that's where the great amount of pain comes from. So I've tried to tell people that I said, if you can progress through that fusing, if your body progresses through it, the pain can change for you, but there's no set time. It's not like it's going to, it's not like, oh, you're, you're 20. So by your forties and fifties, you should be fused and the pain will change. Yeah. You might never be through with fusing because it might be such a, such a slow fuse that you may never be done with it. Or you could be done in your thirties if it's such a, a severe onset or forties. I mean, there's just no way to set an age time frame to it. Uh, there isn't. I, yeah. I think that's frustrating to people. They want to know how to control it. And I just kind of always tell them you kind of just have to accept what it is. And if you can, if you can do that for your mental health, that will really help you in dealing with the pain that you're going to continue to encounter. Well, yes, I find it very depressing in many of these Facebook groups um, that people are saying, Oh, I've just been diagnosed and what's going to happen to me. And then the response is that, well, you've got it. It's a life sentence. It's only going to get worse. That is just so untrue. It's true for some people, but not for, not for others. I'm a case in point. I went through 10 years of hell before I was diagnosed. The diagnosis for me was a huge burden off my shoulders. I suddenly understood that this wasn't just in my head, that other people had this disease, that there was a name for it, there was a course of disease, there were recommended treatment options. So getting the diagnosis was half the treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think people who say they've just been diagnosed, they're lucky because now they have the diagnosis. They know it's something. Now they can control it or they can start to control it. How do they control it? Well, it's that famous ASAS, the Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society and ULA recommendations for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. And you have the NASAIDs, you have the um, BMARDs, including biologics. And um, in this left-hand column here, I'm showing this to you on video. It says education, exercise, physical therapy, rehabilitation, patient associations, self-help groups. And to that, I would add diet. Mm-hmm. Not that there's any secret diet, but you do have to be careful to make sure you're not eating junk. I mean, that's just common sense. But education is a treatment option that you can take into your own hands. It requires a lifestyle change, as does diet. But um, you can improve your life by exercising, educating yourself. Personally, I find that all my years of volunteering in this um, axial spondyloarthritis community has been therapeutic and very educational. So the more you know about the disease, the better you're able to understand it and uh, cope with it. And then exercise is necessary to stop kyphosis, the leaning, the bending forward of, of the neck, and to maintain flexibility and range of motion. And then there's recreational exercise that you do for fun. Uh, so I'll put a plug in for Walk Your AS Off, which is ongoing during the month of May every year. But it's great. Walking is fantastic exercise. And it's really, really fantastic to see people who couldn't 
really get off the couch and make it to the front door, you know, through walk your AS off. They've persevered, they've got to the front door, then they've got to the front garden gate, then they've got to the end of the block, and now they're walking, you know, five, six, seven, ten kilometers a day. It's, it's fantastic. It is possible. Yeah, you don't have to get up and run a marathon your first day. Oh, God, As no, you said, no. if you walk Take across the apartment or walk across yeah. your living room two, yeah. three times, and that's the extent of what you can do, that's great. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't have to go and lift heavy weights. If you go to your kitchen and get a big can of tomato sauce or whatever it is and pick that up over your head four or five times and that's the best you can do, that's a start. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. It all starts with just committing to moving. Moving everything because, else will mm -hmm. fall into place yeah because any activity is better than no activity and as they say um sitting is the new smoking that applies to everybody not just people in our community but it, it's true of people in our community please please don't just sit there and feel sorry for yourself i know it's hard to get over the mental aspect if you have a significant other um engage that significant other in your um quest to um, build a better exercise regime and to eat better um, they may have to exercise tough love on you sometimes I wouldn't have survived my 10 really bad years without my wife you know kicking me in the backside from time to time <laughs> and saying you can't just sit there and stare at a wall all day Michael <laughs> you have to do something <laughs> so um, well that's that's, so my, true. that's my attitude <laughs> that is so true and you know, if you're diagnosed now, just having access to something like a biologic, which can allow you to feel better, to control that inflammation, to get moving. I always tell people, I'd like to take a side picture. Sometime I'm going to do that. Take a side picture of me standing on my cane, hunched mm -hmm. over and say, you know, when you're feeling good about that biologic, you know, you say I've been on it. The, where I was going with this, the one that drives me nuts is when you see somebody that says, well, I took a biologic for two years. I felt good. So I stopped. Oh, no, yeah. that's, you, that's crazy. That's not yeah. how they work. And your doctor yeah. should have smacked you upside the head for saying that. Yeah. You just having the function or the ability to get on a biologic and control that inflammation. Yes. It's going to probably be for the rest of your life or for at least the foreseeable future until something different changes, but take it, control that inflammation because the damage that rampant inflammation can do is and, and that's where I say I'd like to get the picture of me standing mm -hmm. hunched over on a cane this is what uncontrolled inflammation can do to you yeah yeah no I understand that and people uh, shouldn't avoid uh, anti-inflammatories if they if they are experiencing a lot of pain uh, it's necessary to uh, stop that deformity or at least try and slow down the progression of it, it there is. is something now called um, there is an idea now called uh, treat to target it works very well in rheumatoid arthritis because rheumatoid arthritis is much more measurable than ankylosing spondylitis is in terms of you know the number of painful joints and stuff like that um, so treat to target doesn't really work quite as well in axial spondyloarthritis as it does in rheumatoid arthritis but it's basically setting a goal and the goal is treatment stability and when somebody's on that stable treatment um, 
whether it's an NSAID or whether it's a biologic, then you can start looking at reducing the dosage. So it has been tested and it does work so that people who aren't biologics can take start can start taking doses at longer interview intervals or reduced doses. So treat to target is something that's very interesting coming down the line, as is personalized or precision medication. You know at the moment that um, any one biologic only works on about 70% of the patients uh, who are given it. So you find that patients are revolving through the biologics until they find the one that works for them. With precision medication, um, you will be matched up to the biologic that works for you from day one. There's no need to waste a lot of time revolving through these things. Yeah, I did an interview a few months ago with a research rheumatologist at the University of Michigan Hospital. And that's one of the things that they're working on is the way to go in and identify which biologic will work so that it's not such a crapshoot and say, oh, we're going to move this patient A right to Cosentix or to Humira or Remicade or whatever. Yeah. Um, because we've identified and been able to identify that that's what they're going to, that's what they're going to respond to. So very interesting very interesting stuff coming down um, the pipeline and very interesting stuff that has been done in the last 30 years. Well, it is, and that progress is ever accelerating. Now we're looking at jack inhibitors and uh, other inhibitors that are given in pill form. You know, you don't need an infusion. You don't need an injection. You just take a pill. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Exactly, exactly. So, well... Michael, with that said, I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to interacting more with you online, and, and we'll see about maybe in a six months or so having you back on, and we'll see uh, if I can get some other folks who will get a more robust conversation just on axial spondylar arthritis and the removal of even the differentiating it further underneath there from radiographic versus non-radiographic. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you and um, there's lots coming down the line as we've discussed and we didn't even talk about World AS Day. <laughs> no, that we'll, we'll do that on the next episode in prep for the 2021. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, since we're coming and going real quick on this, but Michael, thank you again for your time. And, thank you, Jason. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again. And me talking to you too. I look forward to it. You take thank care, you. sir. Yeah, same to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Okay, bye.